History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia, episode 67, The Empire of Artaxerxes. As with all of the most important Achaemenid kings, the reign of Artaxerxes I necessitates a sort of grab bag episode for all of the important events around the empire that merit some discussion, but just don't have enough information to take up their own episodes. But last time we did a bit of a recap with the family history of the Megabizid clan, from the conspiracy to place Darius the Great on the throne to the rebellion and punishments of Megabizus as satrap of Assyria. This time, I think the best place to pick up is by continuing the story of the Megabizid family. Megabizus himself returned to the royal court sometime in the late 440s, but after that, the timeline becomes confused. Of course, what else is new? Following Theseus's chronology, Megabizus seems like he must have lived for at least another decade at court, and the events after his death must have occurred in the 430s. On the other hand, Athenian records seem to firmly place at least one event in 440 BCE. Theseus is always considered unreliable, but I would also caution against assuming that our very fragmentary records for Athenian military activity in the mid-5th century are perfect. Regardless, neither version of events is massively important for anything other than finishing the story from last time. Soon after Megabizus died, according to Theseus, his wife Amatus fell ill. At first, her condition wasn't serious, and she had access to her renowned household physician, Apollonides of Kos. According to the ever-salacious Theseus, Apollonides told her that it was a disease in her womb, 
and the only way to treat it would be by having sex, preferably with a certain qualified physician. So after repeatedly assaulting his patron and an Achaemenid royal woman to boot, Apollonides announced that her condition was worsening and there was nothing more he could do. Amatus's mother, Queen Mother Amestris, was miraculously still alive, and came to see her daughter on her deathbed. She heard about Apollonides' treatment program, and rightly disgusted, Amestris told Artaxerxes how his sister had died. She implored her son to punish Apollonides because this paragraph didn't have enough A names already. Artaxerxes told his mother that she could do whatever she wanted to the Greek physician as punishment. So Amestris had him tortured for two months, then buried alive. Of course, this story has all the juicy details and the divorce from actual Persian practice of Greek fiction. Once again, a story of burying someone alive seems directly at odds with actual Iranian beliefs regarding human burial. However, Theseus must have heard the story somewhere, and a kernel of truth at the core of the story would not be too fantastical. If Amatus died of some untreatable disease, maybe even a cyst or cancer in her reproductive system, and Apollonides was punished for failing to save the princess, well, it would hardly be a unique story of irrational rulers taking their grief out on a servant, would it? As I've said before, this is also the exact kind of personal power that the Achaemenid queen mothers could exercise in royal affairs. After Amatus and Megabizus died, their son Zopyrus tried to revive his father's rebellion in Assyria. He was not nearly as successful as his father. His own brother, Artifios, didn't even support him. None of our historians record any details about this rebellion, but from the bit of context in Theseus, it doesn't seem to have had any momentum. Zopyrus soon hopped on a ship in Phoenicia and defected to Athens as an exile, which I think is our first example of a disgraced Persian fleeing to Greece rather than a disgraced Greek fleeing to Persia. Artifios remained an important figure in the Assyrian province, but he was not promoted. Understandably, Artaxerxes was no longer in a rush to put more Megabizuds on a throne. Instead, he seems to have sent one of his illegitimate sons, Arsites, to become the new satrap, though this is not stated explicitly. We just know that Arsites was satrap a few years later. The extended royal family must have been quite surprised when Zopyrus reappeared in Persian territory a year later at the head of an Athenian war fleet that was really testing the limits of the Peace of Callias. Zopyrus led the Athenian invasion of Conus, a city in Caria on the southwestern side of Anatolia. The thing about Conus is that it wasn't called Conus by large parts of its population. It had been founded as Kibbit, an indigenous Carian city, and had seen lots of Greek immigration over the last century. So much so that the Greek name was starting to displace the Carian one. As such, the Athenians were really testing the waters of their peace with the great king, because the Greek cities had been granted autonomy in the peace settlement, 
but Kibid was not a Greek city. The local leaders said they would surrender to Zapyrus, but not his Athenian allies. They would accept a Persian ruler, but not the Delian League. Zapyrus was able to enter the city to negotiate, but the angry crowd inside the walls was having none of it. They began throwing stones, and somebody scored a lucky shot on Zapyrus' head. A random Conian citizen killed the renegade royal cousin, and Athens withdrew. According to Theseus, the ever-vindictive Amestris had the culprit crucified for murdering her grandson. Rebel or not, he was still a royal family member, and though it often seems like these are grand political actors, they are also just a human family with an excess of money and power. This is where the timeline gets confused, though. Athenian records mention attack on Kaunas in 440, whereas Theseus's timeline makes it seem like Zopyrus was there in the 430s. It is entirely possible that Athens attempted to take the city twice, and equally possible that Theseus just put his stories in the wrong order. At the very least, it's an opportunity for me to jump back to the late 440s. While a second Athenian attack on Kaunas is speculation on my part, we can definitely say that the Athenians assaulted the Carian city in 440. In all likelihood, this was a stress test of the Peace of Callias, in retaliation for Persia testing its own limits the year before. The 440s were understandably a tumultuous decade for the Greek cities that suddenly found themselves in a strange sort of custody-sharing arrangement between the Athenian and Persian empires. Between the Peace of Callias and the end of the First Peloponnesian War, Athens was looking pretty weak. So rather than bringing their armies home for much-needed rest, the Athenians had to keep sending out fleets all over the Mediterranean to forcibly disarm their allies and keep them in the Delian League. Miletus, always the rebel, had to be subdued twice in 450 and 446. After the second time, the Milesian military apparatus was almost entirely disarmed, saved for the very basics of a local militia, which made it a problem when Miletus ended up in a territorial dispute with the island of Samos, which was still largely independent of Athens in 441. The Athenians had to intervene on Miletus's behalf and invaded Samos. Athens was so spread thin and anticipating other revolts that they only sent 40 of their 250 or so ships. These ships were under the command of a new character for us, but someone who has been dominating Athenian politics for about 20 years at this point. Meet Pericles. Pericles was the son of Xanthippus, who commanded the Athenian fleet at Mycale in 479. He had been serving as an Athenian general for years and had risen to become the de facto leader of Athens and the Delian League when Cimon was ousted in 461. The importance of Pericles in Athenian history is hard to overstate. His reforms and building projects came to define classical Athens. However, he's actually only tangentially relevant to the history of Persia, so you'll mostly just have to wait for casting through ancient Greece if you want more about Pericles. 
What you need to know about him for our sake is that Pericles is the leader of Athens, the very top of their military and political hierarchy, and he just landed on Samos. Around the same time, Artaphernes the Younger finally died and had to be replaced as satrap of Lydia. We haven't heard much from Artaphernes since Xerxes first invaded Greece, but Darius the Great's nephew has quietly been ruling from Sardis since the mid-480s. When he died, power passed to one of Darius's grandsons, from a relatively unknown branch of the royal family named Pisuthnes. Artaphernes died around the same time as his northern neighbor and another old friend of the podcast, Artabazus, satrap of Phrygia. We've seen Artabazus more recently, from leading Persian troops on repeated journeys through Thrace to acting as the chief opponent of Athenian aggression in the Persian Empire, Artabazus has also been around for a while, but he must have died sometime around 440 and was succeeded by either his son or his grandson, neither of whom took an active role in the conflict as he had. Instead, Pisuthnes became the new leading figure in the Cold War with Athens. One of Pisuthnes' first acts as satrap was to intervene on Samos. Of course, Pisuthnes was officially forbidden from sending an army or a fleet to his own Greek coast, so he sent the Samian oligarchs a boatload of gold to hire mercenaries, which coincidentally happened to arrive at the same time as 700 mercenaries from inland Lydia, looking for work. What are the odds? The oligarchs' existing army and their mercenaries marched into Samos and pushed the Athenians out. Many Athenians were captured and sent to Pisuthnes as captives for no reason we swear. Athens sent a few more ships, but there were other cities in revolt now, crucial cities to the Athenian political project. Byzantium, which controlled the flow of grain from the Black Sea, was an open rebellion, and Metellene, on the island of Lesbos, was courting Spartan support. Pericles, outnumbered, squared off with the Samian navy and managed to pull off a victory at sea, but the Samian forces and their mercenaries pulled back to their city walls to wait out the Athenian siege. As this was happening, Sparta called for a congress of the Peloponnesian League to debate intervening in the Aegean islands, and a terrifying rumor swept through the Athenians on Samos. The Persian fleet was coming, the peace was broken, the war with Artaxerxes was back on, and the Peloponnesian War might resume at any minute. Pericles had to act. He sailed south to Caria and Conus to intercept the Persian fleet. The token Athenian force left behind was driven off by the Samians, but just as everything looked dire, it was revealed to be a smokescreen. There was no Persian fleet. The Athenians harassed Conus for a few days and then went back to Samos to resume their siege. The representatives from Corinth, afraid of becoming the front line of an Athenian offensive, advised the Spartans against setting the precedent of intervening in an opposing alliance's internal politics. In the end, the only notable thing about Samos was that Athens decided that Persian satraps funding Persian mercenaries in Greek cities was technically allowed by the peace. 
but the tension in late 440 was a great display of the political situation. Athens knew it was on thin ice, and one of its two major wars was bound to resume at any moment. The 430s saw continuous bickering on the western seaboard of Anatolia, but Greece had other plans. Over the course of the 430s, Corinth took actions to support their own neutral colonies, including increasing their navy. This terrified Athens because Corinth was also in the Peloponnesian League. An economic spat with Megara led Athens to ban Megarian merchants from trading with all Delian League members, effectively cutting them out of Aegean trade. Both Megara and Corinth began appealing to Sparta for aid against Athenian hostilities. And in 431, the Spartan co-king Archidamos led a Peloponnesian invasion of Athenian territory and the Second Peloponnesian War. The one Thucydides meant as THE Peloponnesian War had begun. It would absorb most Greek attention for the next 30 years. As war consumed southern Greece, there wasn't much for the Greek cities in Anatolia to do except keep paying tribute and send ships if they were still allowed to have ships. The other option, as always, was to seize on a moment of Athenian weakness and revolt. The city of Colophon did exactly that, and a non-Greek commander called Itamenes invaded the city with a bunch of gold and mercenaries that both happened to have come with letters from Pesuthnes. Itamenes captured Colophon's port and kicked the Athenians out of an important coastal city, which happened to reopen a corridor between Sardis and the west coast. Pesuthnes also sent a guy named Histaspes, probably his oldest son, to direct the local mercenaries and militias closer to the coast from a base in Kaunas. And yes, it's another Histaspes. We're full of them. Athens began sending raiding parties further inland to bring funds for the war. Histaspes organized some local militias from Caria and the surrounding region to go to Magnesia on the Meander and wipe out some of these Athenian raiders. In 430, a squadron of six Athenian ships was raiding along the rivers in Lycia on the south coast of Anatolia when King Trebimi of Xanthus attacked them and wiped out this raiding party as well. At this time, Lycian cities disappear from Athens' tribute lists. Whether Trebimini was acting with Histaspes' support is unclear. If Zopyrus' attack on Kaunas was a second Athenian assault on the city, it was probably in direct response to what Histaspes was doing as the Persian leader of local resistance in the late 430s. Pesuthnes' actions probably could have been mistaken for direct hostility to Athens, but from his own perspective, he was securing his satrapy. Athenian raids inland were wiped out for obvious reasons, and securing Colophon just meant access to valuable Aegean trade that had been lost in recent years. When the island of Lesbos tried to organize a general Ionian revolt against Athens in 428, they received no support from the Persians and were soundly defeated 
even while Athens was occupied with Sparta. Pasuthnes would defend his own interest, but he had no orders from Artaxerxes to violate the general terms of the Peace of Callias at this time. While all of the fun was happening in Anatolia and the Aegean, life in the rest of the empire went on, we assume. Despite being the second longest reigning Achaemenid king, Artaxerxes I's reign is pretty poorly documented. Even in Egypt and Babylonia, where we sometimes get administrative records that weave a political story, there's just not much to say. In Babylon, we can at least observe the beginning of a historical process. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. In 465, just as Artaxerxes took power, the Marashu family began to emerge as an economic force in Babylonia. Beginning under Cyrus, but really surging ahead under Xerxes, Babylonian land was used to pay Iranian nobles. A huge amount of Medes, Persians, Sakai, and interestingly, Aryans from the region around modern Herat were all given land in Babylonia. These land grants were often massive plots surrounding a city, which would be very expensive to work, and under Babylonian law, all farmland had to be worked. Rather than hiring laborers to work their farmland, 
nobles would typically lease their properties to others on the condition that they handle working the land. Typically, these first-level tenants were actually the wealthiest members of the merchant class. Rather than renting to actual tenant farmers engaged in agriculture, the nobility rented to middlemen who acted as property managers. These merchant-class landlords, in turn, leased to the younger sons of the lesser nobility, other merchants, and minor common landowners looking for a larger harvest. It was this third level down that would start hiring people or actually working the land themselves. Sometimes even a fourth or fifth tier could be in place. In the city of Nippur, one of these first-tier property-managing families were the Marashu. They leased land from the great and the good, and then they sublet it to others. And then each tier took a slice of the profits from each parcel of land. The Marashu rapidly expanded their operation to act as the primary tenant for more and more noble landowners, especially those who preferred to live in Babylon rather than on the land they owned in Nippur. The Marashu rapidly became some of the most powerful middlemen in Babylonia. Not only were they the greatest property managers in the land, but they were able to issue loans from their rapidly expanding hoard of wealth. They became kind of early bankers, issuing notes of credit in exchange for collateral. In an economy that was still largely reliant on in-kind trade and barter, this was as close to a bank account as it got. And, of course, the collateral was often another parcel of land. By 430 BC, they were making contracts with the royal household directly. In all likelihood, they still had no direct contact with Artaxerxes himself, but they won a contract to lease all of the canals surrounding Nippur. Mesopotamia's waterways were predominantly treated as royal property, and now the Marashu commanded the surrounding region's water supply with a direct royal contract. Their archives grew to become the single largest Babylonian source for the Achaemenid period. Much of the older writing about the Marashu had to do with speculation that they were Jews. This had a bit to do with some linguistic quirks of how Hebrew names could be translated into Akkadian, but it had a lot to do with anti-Semitic tropes about Jews being bankers and the Marashu leasing land to Babylon's large Jewish population. But you know what? Screw it. I can also use that as a transition to start talking about Judea, since I don't have a better idea and it needed to be addressed. In Judea, the timeline is massively confused because the authors of our primary biblical sources— the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, don't use regnal numbers. There's no indication whatsoever if the text is referring to Artaxerxes I, second, or even third, though third and fourth are both much less likely. The problem is even more confusing since Ezra and Nehemiah are a combination of between one and five texts depending on how you examine it. The most traditional outlook, as used in the Jewish canon, is that the whole text is a single book from a single author usually identified as Ezra, a Jewish community and religious leader in Judea 
who is credited with things like formalizing the written Torah during the early Achaemenid period. This was already established by the 2nd century BCE. Medieval Christian tradition increasingly noticed two distinct sections within Ezra and split the second part into Nehemiah. Modern scholars have noticed two distinct sections in each of the two books. I'll deal with Ezra and Nehemiah more as part of the series on Artaxerxes II, just because it will be easier to address some of the controversies if you know who Artaxerxes II is. However, at least one small section of Ezra does seem to be dated to the reign of Artaxerxes I, or at least the creator of this section thought it belonged in the reign of Artaxerxes I. Biblical scholar Jeha Bakala identifies the first four chapters as the work of an ancient editor who combined additional texts to create the modern story of Ezra. Others identified the first six chapters as one section, edited together with the last four as a second section. In either case, chapter four opens with a single line about Xerxes, under the Hebrew name Ahasuerus, and then switches to Artaxerxes. Chapter 5 is set in the reign of Darius. If we assume that these are part of the same original text, or that the editor Pekala attributes chapter 4 to had any sense of chronology at all, then the Darius in question is Darius II, and this must be Artaxerxes I in chapter 4. This is also supported by references to the province of Ebernari, the Akkadian name for the province I usually call Assyria, which would make this a reference to Darius II, though the Bible is full to the brim with anachronisms, so take that with some salt. Sometime during Artaxerxes I's reign, a coalition of non-Jews living in Judea sent a letter to the king complaining about the Jewish leadership's policies in the region. There was general opposition to the Jewish leadership under the descendant of the Davidic kings, Zerubbabel, who was intent on rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, and more importantly, rebuilding the city walls. This coalition warned Xerxes that Jerusalem had a history of rebellion and resistance to its imperial masters, and implored him to search his royal archives for evidence to support their claims. And of course, if you were to check the Babylonian archives in the 5th century BCE, you'd see pretty quickly that this Jerusalem place was nothing but trouble for the Babylonians and the Assyrians before them. So Artaxerxes sent orders back to Judea to the effect of, You guys are right, what were my ancestors thinking funding these people in their attempt to rebuild their city? You have my permission to stop these would-be rebels in their tracks. So the anti-Jewish coalition marched into Jerusalem and ordered the Jewish leadership to stop, presumably waving Artaxerxes' letter in their faces. Construction in Jerusalem ground to a halt accordingly. Ezra, according to usual biblical style, portrays this as religious persecution, and no doubt that was part of it, especially on the part of the locals. Major opposition to Jerusalem under Artaxerxes came from Samaria, the one-time capital of the Kingdom of Israel, 
The Samaritans claimed to practice a purer form of the old Hebrew religion, but were closely related to the Jews, and that could be an obvious source of tension. However, the other parties were Babylonians, Iranians, and Elamites that had been resettled there or emigrated to Judea during the last century. They had no standing religious quarrel with the Judeans unless Jewish law was interfering with their lives, which may actually have been the case. That certainly happened later, but all of these people, especially the Samaritans, had another cause to defang the city of Jerusalem. They were the inhabitants of the other fortified, more powerful cities at the time. A restored Jerusalem, with the income of a major temple, would be a direct competitor to their own worldly political power. But depending on the exact course of events, this is as far as we go in Judea under Artaxerxes I. Everything has ground to a halt, and we're sticking with the status quo for the time being. Syria, Eastern Anatolia, the African provinces, and of course the Eastern Empire are all just as poorly documented as usual, with basically nothing to add even though dramatic events were probably playing out there as well. In Elam, one of Artaxerxes' building projects probably deserves some attention. Sometime during his reign, his grandfather's palace at Susa caught fire. Darius the Great's first major palace, discussed back in episode 30. All that beautifully adorned cedar, yaka, and ebony went up in flames. The silver and gold melted away. The ivory and precious stones were charred. Baked bricks and stone columns collapsed into heaps. There's no evidence that this was due to some kind of Elamite uprising. Wildfires have always been a semi-regular occurrence in Susiana, modern Khuzestan, and strict limitations on water usage for irrigation in Babylon suggest that there may have been some drought under Artaxerxes. Something caught at Susa, where some braziers may even have been lit with bitumen, and it all went up. Fortunately for Artaxerxes, one of the surviving pieces of the old palace was Darius's list of building materials. With administrators who visited the palace for a few months every single year and a basic outline of the materials used, Artaxerxes was able to direct and fund a rebuilding project to replicate the old palace. The living space and administrative sections took priority and were mostly completed during his reign. The Apadana audience hall would ultimately be completed by his son. In Parsa, Artaxerxes even signals the end of the Persepolis treasury archive, with just a few tablets in his name that don't elucidate much outside of building projects. And Artaxerxes had no shortage of building projects. His successors would put the finishing touches on a few things, and add a few ad hoc buildings of their own, but Artaxerxes I completed the Persian city. To get a complete picture of Persepolis, have a look back at episodes 30 and 57 to see what Darius and Xerxes built on the site. Especially 57, since Xerxes built most of it. Both of Artaxerxes' major projects seem like they would have served the same purpose as existing buildings. First up is the Hall of a Hundred Columns, 
reconstructing the origins of the hall take a few steps beyond what we normally need at Persepolis. In an inscription on one of the walls, Artaxerxes proclaimed that Xerxes had started construction during his reign, but Artaxerxes completed the project. The hall has the exact same dimensions as the Athenian Odeon, a grand performance venue that was being constructed in Athens around the same time. The Odeon had ten fewer columns, probably to accommodate a stage, but the two buildings, thousands of miles apart, shared a model. Both were based on Xerxes' royal pavilion, something he inherited from his father, if not something that was made for Cyrus and Cambyses. Technically speaking, it was a tent that traveled with the king. But it was a tent in the same sense as a circus tent. It was a 68.5 meter or 225 foot square, supported by 100 poles. After the tent was captured at Plataea, both sides of the conflict had a similar idea. Recreate the king's pavilion in stone. Athens turned it into a music venue, while Persia built a stone copy to fulfill the same role in the same place on the terrace at Persepolis. What exactly that purpose was is not clear. It has the general design of an audience hall. When traveling, the king might have lived in the tent version as well, but there were palaces at Persepolis. There was also an audience hall, the Apadana, which was a similar size and capacity to the hall of a hundred columns. In fact, the new hall was slightly smaller. A hint might be in one of its future uses. About a century later, it became an extended storage space for the Persian treasury. As the king's traveling residence, the original tent may have acted as a sort of trophy room, housing some of the king's most prized personal belongings on public display. In that case, the Hall of a Hundred Columns may have been a more personal or more impressive audience space for the Achaemenid kings. The new hall extended Xerxes' palace complex into the northeastern quadrant of the terrace. There was a narrow alley separating it from the treasury to its south, and it connected to Xerxes' palace at its southeastern corner, a passage for the king to exit and enter out of the pavilion through a back door. The southern, western, and eastern walls were all lined with small chambers, either for storage or maybe breakaway meetings. The official entrance was on the northern side of the hall, facing the wide open space of the northern terrace. This grand entrance was flanked by a pair of bull statues, and the whole hall was decorated with the usual Achaemenid motifs of tribute bearers, soldiers, kings, servants, and winged discs. On the far western edge of the terrace, Artaxerxes completed another project started by his father. For some reason, this was another palace. Like Darius's original palace, and unlike the so-called harem of Xerxes, this was a smaller residential affair. It was located just south of Darius's palace with an open courtyard in between, and the fortification wall on the eastern side. The front was a covered porch with columns which led to a small throne hall or reception area. 
the back of that reception area exited out into a courtyard lined with still more columns, which might have supported an awning on sunny days. On the southwestern corner of the courtyard, a decorative facade was added to the fortification walls. This rear courtyard was also a way to access the corridor between the audience hall in Xerxes' palace and the apartments or storage rooms on the southern edge of the complex. It also provided access to a very narrow alley that ran between Xerxes' audience hall and the eastern wall of the new structure. Inside that wall, within Artaxerxes' new palace, you would find just a couple residential rooms. One large room, two smaller ones, and a connecting hall based on most reconstructions. This seems like a step taken to accommodate the growing royal family. This last palace was just enough to accommodate the king himself and his most immediate family members, or a royal wife and her legitimate children, say, the mother of the heir. Darius's palace and the residential spaces of Xerxes' palace could then host other members of the royal family and their entourage. The rest of the work done at Persepolis under Artaxerxes I was almost entirely stuff that screams finishing touches. An extra row of columns was added to the parade route courtyard between the Apadana and Xerxes' audience hall. Additional fortification walls were built around the southeastern side of the terrace, and a new retaining wall was added to the mountains on the eastern edge of the platform, ending in a sort of watchtower in a recessed part of the mountain. Some additional rooms were built to the east of Darius's original treasury, attached to a monumental gate that had gone largely unused for most of the last 60 years. This may have become the chancellery offices of the Persepolis administration, or just additional storage with an unusually grand entrance. Finally, Artaxerxes oversaw the true finishing touches. Final decorations were added to the grand staircase that led down to the surrounding plains, and the rear entrance stairs used to bring workers and equipment into the complex were sealed off with a final section of walls. Cleaning up the entrances was the most definitive signal that the major construction was complete. I imagine those first few days without bricklaying, hammering, and scaffolds contained a kind of eerie silence as Darius's Persian city was finally completed, almost a full century after construction first began. Well, I'm never going to get a better ending than that, so I'll just tease that next time we start the wrap-up phase of Artaxerxes I, so we're going to take a break from any direct storytelling and talk about religion. Until then, thank you all so much for listening. If you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. There you'll find my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and the support page. That's where you can find ways to financially support this project, like one-time payments through Stripe, and Patreon subscriptions. If you go to patreon.com slash historyofpersia, you can get access to things like bonus episodes and ad-free listening for a monthly subscription and help keep this podcast afloat. Of course, there's other ways to support the show, like getting other people to come listen to the podcast. 
Share it on social media where you can find me at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, or just History of Persia on Twitter. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.